0: Uh, Good morning It's time to get underway Uh, Welcome to SACPA My name's Dwayne Pendergast and I'm your moderator today Now to get on to the talk we've heard a lot about climate change over the past couple of decades Alberta's government is exploring ways to manage greenhouse gases and is investing in research our speaker today Don Lawton will tell us about one of these initiatives. Don's a professor of geophysics at the University of Calgary and he will speak to carbon capture and storage in Canada. He's brought some colleagues. Amanda Boyd, a PhD student, is studying public reaction to the carbon capture and storage concept and Rob Lavoy. Is assisting Dawn in a research project. <clears throat> Hopefully, they'll be able to stay for a little while after our formal session to respond to additional questions. Uh, could you please stand up, Rob and Amanda? So we'll know who's. <clears throat> we want to know who's studying us. Let's show our appreciation to Don, Amanda, and Rob for coming down from Calgary to tell us about this important work. The podium is yours, Don. Well, thank you
1: very much, Dwayne. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be down here this afternoon. We had been trying to uh, organize this talk uh, earlier this year, but uh, various things came up that I was unable to make it down, but I'm um, delighted to be able to come and share some uh, thoughts about uh, carbon capture and storage with you here this afternoon. Uh, it's an important topic for Alberta. As you know, there's a lot of discussion about climate change and CO2 emissions, and Carbon capture and storage is, is one of the technologies that the government is looking at seriously for you know, mitigating emissions into the atmosphere. So a little bit of the outline of what I'll go through today, if, uh, yeah, here we go, that uh, we'll go through in the talk a uh, little bit of background on what is carbon capture and storage. I'm sure you all have heard about it. Uh, we'll just look at the concept in general. Uh, then why do it? How much does it cost? Is it safe? This is an area that I'm working in particular. That's why it's in green. That's my research area. I was looking at uh, assuring uh, both regulators, the industry, and and the public that this can be a safe technology, but it needs uh, technology applied to it to ensure that it's as safe as possible. Uh, Then what's happening in Alberta? Where uh, can it make a difference? Uh, what are the current barriers to implementation and some, some frequently asked questions that have come up from the public? And that's why it's great to have Amanda here. These questions have been uh, put together by her interaction with uh, the public at other venues. So let's work our way through this list uh, over the next 25 minutes or so. So CCS, what is it? Uh, in a s- simplified diagram, we take large point sources of carbon dioxide emissions, typically coal-fired power stations, and in this sort of concept view, we ta- instead of having the flue gas or exhaust simply released into the atmosphere, we capture that, transport it, and pump it underground to various geological horizons. So the technology is all there to do all of this. It's relatively expensive, uh, and the most expensive part is actually capturing the CO2 out of the gases that come out of a coal-fired power station. Because you think of the makeup of air, it's it's mostly nitrogen, so that nitrogen passes through the combustion or burning process and is in the flue gas. So uh, the big cost is separating the CO2 out of that nitrogen-rich stream. Uh, we won't talk too much about that. Uh, it's well established technology. It's expensive and a lot of the research is focusing on how to make that, make that cheaper. So if we take a look at CO2 in this, this part and say, well, let's store it underground. That's what I'm going to be talking mostly about today. And if you look at the types of rocks that we can store carbon dioxide in what well, we think safely, uh, fall into a number of uh, different categories. Uh, we can use coals uh, that are shallow or too deep to be mined, and I know that you know, Lethbridge has a, a long history of coal mining, and uh, there's lots of coal seams uh, around the Lethbridge area and, and north and east of Lethbridge, and a lot of these could be receptors of CO2, because actually CO2 likes to stick to coals, and uh, that's a, a way of to store it uh, in these coal zones. The potential for how much we can store is, is a question. It's, it's not the hugest amount, but it's, it's a significant amount. Uh, we can store CO2 in what used to be oil and gas reservoirs. You know, there's a lot of uh, oil and gas industry uh, in southern Alberta. A lot of those oil, feeds, oil fields, the oil has already been extracted, and all the little holes in the rocks that held the oil uh, now could potentially hold CO2. They were safely stored for oil. Oil had been there for millions of years, so there's no reason to expect why CO2 would not be safe in those uh, environments also. Uh, In many places, the CO2 itself is actually being used to enhance the recovery of oil out of oil and gas reservoirs, and the best-known project in Canada is at Weyburn in southeastern Saskatchewan, where CO2 is being used to drive more oil out of the reservoirs, and at the same time, you, as you do that, you actually leave a lot of the CO2 behind. So it's, a, it's ideally what's called enhanced oil recovery, but it's also carbon storage. So that's uh, what's being looked at at the front end of CCS because it generates a revenue stream. It creates more oil uh, at the same time we store CO2. At the same time, you say, well, we produce oil, therefore that will make more CO2 when we, when we burn it. So there's, there's debates about how effective that is in the long term for, as a CO2 storage, but it's one that's economically feasible today. The greatest potential really lies in these what are called deep saline formations or deep saline aquifers. These are porous you know, rocks that have lots of holes in them, very deep in the geology of our basin here. This is in depths anywhere from one and a half to two and a half kilometers below the ground surface which are filled currently with very salty water. And the water is very salty because there's lots of salt in our basin during the geological history. There were places like the Great Salt Lake of Utah uh, was here in Alberta, so there's a lot of those salts that have been dissolved by the water in the ground and makes the groundwater at these deep units very salty, you know, even more salty than seawater. So these aren't waters that can be used for agriculture, Uh, but they looked at very favorable as being able to store CO2. It'll dissolve into these waters and be stored permanently by what's called solubility trapping. It dissolves in them. So those are the types of targets that we look for in terms of where we might want to place the CO2 in the subsurface. And this has been looked at internationally by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or known as IPCC, published a, a report in 2005 Uh, called carbon dioxide capture and storage, looking at its potential on an international basis and what sort of a difference this can make in the total carbon budget internationally and how this technology can be used to reduce CO2 emissions into the atmosphere. So that leads us to this question about why we want to do it. And it's because we live in a very fossil fuel-based economy and any p- burning of fossil fuels creates CO2 that currently is released to the atmosphere. So the worldwide uh, consumption of oil, or oil equivalents, is about 84 million barrels of oil per day. And that's uh, it's thinking of a, a, a way to think about this in a way that makes more sense to us. Uh, this book written by Peter Terzakian, who's a Calgarian, that means we're burning a 1,000 barrels of oil like a 44-gallon drum full of oil every uh, second uh, of our existence. So that creates uh, a tremendous amount of CO2, so we're actually producing around 35 million tons of carbon dioxide per day uh, in the whole world. Now Canada has a small fraction of that, but it's a very visible fraction, particularly uh, with the development of the oil sands that we hear so much about. So in terms of Canada's role in producing CO2. This is a chart that shows uh, the distribution of uh, CO2 emissions into the atmosphere across Canada. And we, we look at the numbers in 2004. These are the white columns. And then what's projected for 2020 using a business-as-usual model. And we see that Alberta has you know, a large, tall stack here compared to nearly all of the other provinces. Uh, this is because the, the current... Uh, emissions uh, from mostly actually coal-fired power stations. Uh, you hear a lot about oil sands, but currently most of the CO2 that gets emitted here in Alberta comes from, from coal-fired power stations. The increase that we see here, up to over 300 million tons a year, uh, is the development of oil sands. So it's an issue that's being addressed by oil sands operators and the provincial government to, to look at the offset of this difference and try to reduce the total amount of emissions of CO2 here in Alberta. So then how can we do that? So this shows on the bottom axis years from 1990 through the 2050 and on the vertical axis is the amount of greenhouse gas emissions. This is megatons or millions of tons of CO2 per year being emitted. The black line here is the historical emissions of CO2 in the country and if we look at a business as usual model as it's known with an annual growth rate of about one and a half percent it's this dotted line, so so by 2050 it will be well over 1.3 billion uh, tons of CO2 per year being emitted uh, by Canada. So the goal of governments uh, is to how to reduce that to levels that are approaching what was uh, around in the early 1990s. And there's no magic bullet and no silver bullet to do it, uh, Rob had a good quote as we were driving down this morning. He called it silver buckshot because we really need m- many different ways of trying to address this uh, reductions of CO2. So we're, we're not really here to debate climate change. I think uh, there's, there's consensus that the climate is warming. There's discussion about how much of that warming is due to human interaction versus natural changes. But the The outcome is that there's a strong movement to reduce the amount of CO2 that humans are emitting into the atmosphere. So these are done by these so-called wedges, and we've sort of collected them here into three different groups in order to try to get the curve to be heading down this direction. uh, We can reduce our CO2 emissions by efficiency on conservation. So we we might make a difference in our lifestyle. We have to drive less. Uh, We have a different way of uh, producing electricity, and one of the easiest ones is instead of burning coal in power stations, we burn natural gas. It's an immediate reduction of CO2 intensity uh, through efficiency. And there's lots of other technologies that are being looked at for generating electricity that get away from burning fossil fuels totally. So uh, that's all being looked at, but it can't reach the goal by itself. So we have renewables and alternative energy, so this is like wind, solar, and nuclear. There's currently a lot of debate about whether Canada should be embracing nuclear power. It's being discussed in terms of uh, development of the oil sands, but that's a long timeline, 20 to 30 years it takes to actually develop, build, and and get a nuclear power station online. Then the third wedge is carbon storage, and that's really driven by carbon capture and storage into underground geological formations. So this isn't a solution by itself, it's one of everything that we should be doing to try to reduce our emissions. The good thing about carbon capture and storage, and I'll refer to it as CCS, is that it's really the only one of these technologies that can be implemented quickly in order to obtain results over a five to ten year period versus a 20- to 25-year period. If we look at investments in alternative energy, wind and solar, that's a 20- to 25-year time frame. There's just not enough wind capacity to meet the demand of of energy growth. Uh, Between now and 2030, the total worldwide consumption of electricity is, uh, is predicted to be double what it is now and the dependence on fossil fuels even with the huge uh, investments in alternative energy is still going to be close to seventy five percent of that energy budget so we have to be dealing with fossil fuels for a a long time to come. So with CCS specifically, and now I'll talk mostly about this uh, technology from now on, how much does it cost? Well to capture it from power plants I mentioned it's expensive, twenty to eighty dollars per ton of CO2 it's typically around this $80 per ton at the moment to transport it to a site where we want to inject it, it's around $1 to $10 per ton to pump it down a well into some geological horizon and then monitor it to ensure it stays there is about $2 to $5 per ton so the total cost is around 30 to 90 so the that impact on current cost is about 20 to $30 per megawatt-hour, so that's about 2 to $0.03 cents per kilowatt-hour that would be being added to your, phone, to your electricity bill uh, under the current uh, technology model. But it is predicted if we can reduce the cost to this level by 2030, then this will be certainly an economically feasible approach uh, within our, our modern economic system. So currently it's expensive. As you know, the government's invested $2 billion into this technology as demonstration pilots, and I'll talk about it shortly. Uh, But it's predicted to get cheaper as that technology improves. So the question I think that uh, often comes up in in public debate about CCS is, is it safe? Is the CO2 going to stay there? Is it going to bubble up into my basement and suffocate uh, people in my house or whatever. uh, That's a a risk that is assessed by the technology. So what we have to be careful of is to ensure that we select sites where we are certain that all of the geological horizons that lie between the CO2 and the ground surface are thoroughly impermeable to the flow of CO2. It just can't get through those units. So rocks like salt and shales or muds you know, they're very impervious to CO2 flow, and, and that's what we look for in terms of picking a site where we might want to implement CCS. Uh, so these are just <coughs> a cartoon of geological layers. We'll, we'll inject CO2 at different locations, and there might be leakage of some CO2 up either natural pathways. Uh, ideally, there wouldn't be, but you, know, you can't guarantee in advance that there wouldn't be seepage at a low rate, or up an old well. We know the provinces, uh, province of Alberta, has close to 300,000 oil wells drilled into drilled into it uh, over a period of of 60 years. So some of those wells will be leakage paths up through the uh, casing cement. Or the, you know, the, when they were wells were drilled, uh, there could be a leakage path. So there's potential for. Some CO2 to leak up this, but it'll be a relatively slow rate, so we, we monitor these to detect whether the leakage occurs and then can develop a mitigation strategy to ensure that it stops so the idea of catastrophic leakage is something that would be highly unlikely, but we still should not discount it and we can mitigate uh, for that uh, possibility so this is where it comes to the sites that we pick for CO2. So this is just a cartoon of a of an Earth model. So this green stuff is the ground surface. This is a slice through the Earth through two different directions. And we know that oil and gas reservoirs uh, are good for storing CO2 into because we know the geometry of these things. We know the shape of the oil reservoir, so we know that uh, it's held oil and gas for for millions of years, therefore, it should hold CO2. So that's what I'm saying the geometry of the reservoir is known. It's trapped under this dome-shaped geological structure, so we know it's contained. Um, we know that the rocks above that oil reservoir are not going to allow any liquids through them because the oil's been held there for these millions of years. And we know a lot about those oil fields because we've been producing oil out of them for decades, and we know their behavior, how the oil flows around through all the little holes in the rocks, so they're well understood. But there's, there are wells that penetrate those fields that might be leakage pathways, so that's the downside of using these types of mechanisms. Now, Compared to these deep silent formations, which certainly have the hugest potential for, for storage, uh, we don't know so much about them, so uh, we might suspect that these reservoirs are not confined. In other words, it's, the CO2 will slowly move away from the well in some direction that we need to figure out in advance what that direction will be, and then be able to monitor where it goes to ensure that it's not going to intersect any pathway that might make its way back up to the surface. Uh, eventually, the CO2 will dissolve into these Salt waters, so then it's completely stored and it's very safe. We know it'll never come back out of solution, so it's a, uh, the ultimate permanent storage of CO2 is to dissolve it into the groundwater. Uh, there's no wells in there, so we don't know a lot about these reservoirs, so that's where the research is currently being done to better understand the flow of CO2 within these saltwater units. And uh, well, I think we're well along in that pathway currently. So the work that we're doing at the University of Calgary is to develop technologies to ensure that CCS is safe. And there's a whole list of technologies here that probably don't mean much to you, uh, but uh, this is, if you think of a medical equivalent, this is bringing the full force of imaging your body into imaging the earth. So uh, we're establishing a research project at the University of Calgary where we're going to be injecting very small amounts of CO2 at a depth of about 600 meters or 2,000 feet, and then we're going to be using a lot of very advanced technologies in order to see where that CO2 is going and how detectable it is in in those ground layers. And then we can build technologies that can be used on commercial-scale projects to ensure that the CO2 remains where it's injected into the subsurface. So I'll just show a couple of examples and explain how these technologies work. Uh, Seismic imaging, um, if any of you have had ultrasound and you do ultrasound scans, you get a good picture of what's happening inside you or certainly for uh, 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 women who are pregnant, ultrasound is used uh, at various times to image the developing fetus and the baby—you can see, you've probably, you've probably seen the great detail that you can get. This uh, seismic technology we, we use for exploring the Earth is really the Earth equivalent. We call ourselves the uh, radiographers of the Earth because we're looking inside the Earth, like the medical uh, radiographers, radiographers look inside your body. Uh, this is seismic. It's used by uh, oil and gas industry to find oil and gas. And I'm sure many of you, those from you from the rural community, of seen seismic crews and seismic operations going. So what we do is we bounce the echoes off the layers, and we can measure the echoes and and decide or interpret those echoes in terms of where CO2 is moving, and therefore we can track where it goes when it's being injected, and we can determine if it's leaking out of a pathway that we don't want to have happen. So we can see early on if it's what we call conforming to what we expect should be going. And we do this on a repeated basis. So, like uh, women will have a, uh, a whole series of scans over the gestation of, of, of their babies, uh, this is the same we do with the earth. So, we will do, we place instruments in a well so we can get uh, detecting systems down. So, this blue layer here is a layer in the earth into which we're going to inject CO2. So, we have a well that we can put our devices in to listen to the CO2. Uh, then we do surface seismic, so we're just measuring echoes from the ground surface from that layer to determine exactly its shape and what its properties are. Then we will inject CO2 down a well into this unit, and it will spread out uh, into, the, into this blue layer. And then we will uh, repeat our survey, and we're going to say, well, since we, uh, our survey last year, we can see that, see that the CO2 has moved from this spot to this spot. Oh, and yes, that's conforming to what we expected to from our knowledge of this uh, uh, reservoir based on modeling or some other prediction of how that CO2 should flow. And then we can just repeat that. We'll put more CO2 in. The, the plume here gets a little bigger. And then we'll do another survey and say, oh, yes, it's reached this part now. Well, it's gone over to here. And so we can continuously track where it's going by these images. And as an example, one of the longest-serving uh, projects that have been injecting CO2 is in Norway. And these are geophysical images, but you can look at these, these ones, think of them as a... If you t- take a slice through the Earth and you then can take all of the echoes and reconstruct that as an image of the Earth, that's what seismic does, uh, then as a function of time... We've been in, so this is the geology with nothing happening... So all these gray bands, so the vertical axis is depth, and the gray bands are the different layers of rocks, and we're injecting CO2 uh, into this unit uh, at around a million tons per year. In 2001, you see there's a change. 2004, 2006, 2008. So we just repeated the surveys, and we can tell by these uh, reds and blues that are developing here. That's telling us where the CO2 is. So it's essentially an ultrasound of the Earth uh, that we're looking at. And now if we instead look down on the Earth, so these bottom pictures are looking, looking down so we could look through the Earth down to that layer. These yellow and green blobs are the where the CO2 is spreading out. And yes, this is a technology that we can see exactly where the CO2 is going to see if it's conforming to what we expect it to be. Uh, In Canada, as I said earlier on, the the longest project is at Weyburn in southeastern Saskatchewan. These, again, are fairly technical slides, but you can see the yellow and red blobs between 2002 and 2007. This is a view down on top of the oil reservoir. This is looking down into the earth here at about uh, one and a half kilometers below the surface. We can say, yeah, so here's the CO2. It's in all these yellow blobs, and here's where it's moved since 2002 between two, uh, after 2007. So our uh, ability to see wh- what's happening there is is very good. So this is what we call assurance monitoring to ensure that we know what's happening when we inject CO2. Another interesting technology is making use of satellites. And we'll just talk about two, uh, seismic and what's called... Uh, Inside imaging or measuring the elevation of the ground surface. So this is this green area here is part of a project in Algeria that is mapping the change in ground, you know, vertical change in the ground position as a function of, of time. And the red blobs are mapping or showing where the ground is elevated by about five millimeters. So these satellites are able to see changes in. And the ground surface of about a millimeter, so we can monitor that. So we think of when you 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 know you blow up a balloon, the balloon gets bigger, so you're expanding everything above it. So you inject CO2 into the ground, the ground will rise slightly, but in the order of probably five to ten millimeters. You would never notice it. I mean, it's way beyond, but we can measure that level of change, and by the shape of how that ground is moved will tell us uh, where the CO2 is going also. So we have a whole suite of these technologies that we use to ensure that the technology is safe. Uh, We can also put a lot of instruments down wells, and uh, my analogy here is like a colonoscopy of the earth, so we put uh, lots of cables and sensors and things uh, down a well and look at the earth from the inside. So uh, that's another uh, way to put into a context, I think, which, with which we're all familiar. Uh, so again, at, uh, at our site in Calgary, we're developing all of these technologies. Uh, this is a, about a, an eighth of a section. We're going to do a small injection and have all these detectors all over the ground surface and be able to really establish uh, the uh, advanced technologies to ensure that the storage of CO2 meets regulatory and public expectations. So let's now uh, just move in our last uh, five or six minutes here about where in Alberta we can store CO2. And this is a map that's uh, produced by the Alberta Research Council, Stephen Batchew. So here's the outline of Alberta here. So uh, the dark brown colors, and you can see Lethbridge is sitting about here. All this belt is where our basin is very good for storing CO2. The greener areas are where it's slightly less good. The light brown is uh, in the, it's sort of fair, and once you're over towards this part of Saskatchewan, it's, it's not so good. And the numbers in here talk about how much CO2 we could store in these different parts, anywhere from uh, 3,000 million tons in these depleted oil and gas reservoirs reservoirs to 10,000 million tons in this brown area and the green areas here. So huge capacity. It's certainly no, no difficulty with capacity. So the Alberta government has invested in four projects. Uh, they don't actually have the money yet. They're still going through the whole uh, feasibility studies. Uh, Shell Quest is a program in east of Edmonton looking at injecting a million tons of CO2 per year, uh, about two and a bit kilometers below the surface, right down, really below some very impermeable layers. Uh, Project Pioneer is using uh, CO2 from a uh, coal-fired power station west of Edmonton and storing that CO2 in formations uh, just south of the Wadman area. Enhanced Energy is looking at uh, getting CO2 out of an upgrader and using it for enhanced oil recovery in some oil fields east of Red Deer. And... Uh, Swan Hills Sin Fuels is looking at uh, technology where you, can, where you actually set fire to coal seams very deep underground, and that drives the gas out. You can produce gas out of coal seams by actually setting them on fire. It sounds kind of weird, but it, uh, it can be done. And then you use that gas to generate electricity and store the CO2. So each of these projects have expectations of, of a million tons per year by 2015, and you can read up about them. I think uh, Dwayne actually posted this website also on the, on the SACPA website uh, under the uh, Department of Energy of the government and read up about how these various projects are working and when they expect to come online. Uh, this, this shows where they are. You see they're clustered around what's called the industrial heartland. These are where all the upgraders are and the, and the large-scale power plants uh, west of Edmonton. The Swan Hills one sits up in here. So this is where the initial concentration of activity will be between now and 2015. Uh, there are some uh, regulatory issues that have to be dealt with as well. Uh, this is just a cartoon of a, of a rock space, and so these black blobs, uh, think of them as sand grains, and the blue parts are the spaces between the grains. So in an oil field, the oil sits in little bubbles in the poor space, and when you produce an oil field, you get the oil to flow up a well to the surface, and you, or gas, and that's how where the oil and gas comes from. So uh, you have rights to that. So if you have freehold title to the land, then you actually own the minerals that lie in it. So if there's nothing in the poor spaces, if it's just water, the question is who owns that space? So the government is currently looking at what's called this poor space ownership, so that uh, companies can, if you like, rent or get permission to use that pore space to inject CO2 so the current debate is whether or not so-called freehold land also includes the spaces and not the minerals that are contained within them so there's a number of uh, regulatory issues that are still being debated before these projects will uh, uh, get started here in Alberta. So to to conclude and I think these are good questions that I can leave you with to ponder over lunch and this is courtesy of Amanda from the work that she's been doing uh, over the past couple of years uh, by interacting with public groups like this uh, uh, around Alberta and elsewhere. Uh, so I can I address some of them, and some of them will perhaps hold over to our discussion period. I think we've covered what is CCS, uh, what is the technology, and we've discussed how what it looks like. Uh, where is this being developed? Well, it's being developed internationally. It's not just a Canadian activity. It's being developed in all the Western Hemisphere and also actually in China and India. People have talked about the developing countries as really not embracing modern technologies, but they're actually uh, leading in some areas. Where, how do you decide where to put the project? Well, you need secure containment. That's really the driver. Who owns and builds the projects? It's going to be a combination of industry and government. Uh, The idea is to minimize public money to be used for it. How long will it take? Probably about five years to get a full-scale CCS project going compared to 25 years for a nuclear. So that timeline of ramping up to make this as fast as possible is is key. Uh, Environmental safety concerns, yes there are, but I think they can be mitigated. What we don't want to see is leakage into groundwater. That's been a big issue for coal bed methane development, and by burying the CO2 deep enough and having enough seals to ensure that it won't leak up into the groundwater is a key driver for the safety and environmental aspects. Who is responsible? Well, currently it will be the companies. The long term, it might be government, holds liability. It's regulated by government. Uh, Once it's underground, we uh, ultimately will have it dissolved in water, and then it's permanently stored, Uh, Why not focus resources on renewable energy and wind and solar? Well, yes, but we need to do everything. It's not enough by itself to make the changes that are needed. So, again, it's a silver buckshot. We need to be doing everything on renewables as well as what we want to do in CCS. Will it create jobs? Yes. Uh, If this technology gets to the level where it makes a difference and the province wants 140 million tons stored by 2050 every year, that means at least three to four one megaton per scale projects coming on stream between now and 2050 uh... frankly i think that's unlikely to be feasible but it'll be a target to head towards uh... the size of that industry will be the about the size of the current natural gas industry so yes it will be a big employer uh... It will affect the economy because it'll be job creation and. What impact will it have on the environment? Uh, I just really covered that already in this issue up here that we do not want to see it into groundwater, but the various mitigation strategies that would be perhaps ripe for discussion uh, afterwards. So there's lots of information available on CCS. Uh, The Government of Canada has a site called CCS 101, and you better get the website here. Uh, We have some brochures as well that have come from various organizations uh, about CCS, and there's a a stack of these ones published by a group known as ICON in Calgary, and uh, we'll leave a box that you can either get one during lunch or or grab a copy on your way out, which gives a lot of information about CCS, and another one published by a European organization that also has, in a little more direct, simple terms, about the technology. So uh, I'll, I'll leave you with those thoughts and look forward to a discussion after lunch. Thank you.